Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Joe Acaria. Joe is a drummer, percussionist, musical director and musical producer from Sydney. From just a young tacker hanging out at the bandstand studying the drummers at the Italian weddings to graduating the conservatory in music, touring in sessions with Wendy Matthews, Human Nature, David Campbell, Jimmy Barnes, a first taste of show life with Tap Dogs and heaps of others and now Joe's the global musical director for stage show Velvet. Joe's career has taken a whole bunch of twists and turns along the way. But it's always come back to one thing, being about the song. You can't miss this one. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Joe Acario. Cheers. I think we're rolling. We are rolling. Joe Acario. That's right. <laughs> well, thank Cross for that because otherwise I'm in the wrong place. You eh? came to the right place. <laughs> Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast, man. Mate, it's really great to be here. Thank you for coming all the way to Marrickville. Too easy, man. Thanks for having me in your house. It's good to be here. Sweet. It's good to, for me to be in my house. Yeah, right, because you've, my... you've been away a bit. Yeah. Yep. yeah, I've been away a bit. Yep. But at the same time, you know, we, we treasure all the moments, but when you're at home, it's like, yes. It's oh, the best. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, very much so. So I'm sorry we didn't go to the studio, but it's maybe fine. if we do like part two, if this works out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Well, this the is studio. A, it's already a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the studio's like, if you just imagine this times about 300, just shit everywhere. Right. Drums and gear and stuff. And uh, it's all, yeah, also a reflection of all the stuff that I've been doing over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's nice to be home because uh, I have travelled a bit in the last um, few months. So yep, yeah, it's nice to be here, especially right. summer in Sydney. I know how good is it? I know like, today was good. It's been it was good. Too, it's been too hot though. Yeah, me, I told you know? we had some friends here from yep. overseas. They just come in on a ship and they're outside, like in the pool, and uh, you can. We had the barbie going. You know, my wife's out there with with her friends now. Just like this, it's the best. It's yeah. so good. Yep, just. Doors are open. Let's do it. Yep. We are pretty lucky. Yep. Uh, I mean, luck is a, is, a, is a weird way of saying it, but I've travelled around places and just gone, okay, you know. Uh, and people have asked me, going, oh, wouldn't you have rather lived in LA or London or, or done that thing? I'd be like, look at where we are. And I'm so happy being where I am. And I can still visit those places yep. and work and do my thing and meet great musicians. And that's not, a, that's not an issue. Uh, I just love coming home. Yep. Yeah. That's absolutely. a beautiful house too. You've got it all here. It's awesome. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. 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 Well, 
mean, we work hard, mate. That's it, eh? Yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, we love what we do, but we we do what we love. So and that's even better. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, we are uh, – yeah, there's no sort of conception – misconception of like where, oh, we've got to do something else. We're, no, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. That's it. <laughs> and enjoy our lives. That's we're not great. living beyond our means. We're just – this is what we love doing. Yeah. So – uh, and what does your wife do? You my wife is um, – she's in musical theatre. So if you see some of these posters, yep. that's her That's her picture from Aladdin, from the costume. She was in Fame. Uh, Xanadu, she was choreographer. Uh, Tap Dogs, she was one of the dancers. I was actually the drummer. That's yep. where we met. Yep, yep. Long story. Cool. Uh, so but she's um, uh, a dancer, singer. Uh, come choreographer and now is the resident director on shows like um, Rocky Horror and she's doing School of Rock at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. So that's, the, that's the Jack Black thing. Exactly. So oh, it's been, great. Yeah, it's been uh, transformed into a musical and uh, she's the resident director so she looks after all the kids, all the adults, make sure the show is in shape, dancing, choreography, music, acting, staging, the whole thing. So it's, it's a bit of a job. Right. But she loves doing it. That's really yeah. cool. So, yeah, we met in um, a show called Steel City, which was uh, basically the uh, after uh, Tap Dogs, uh, which was a, a tap dancing show that toured around the world. Stevie's doing some – Sorry. He's uh, doing some editing. <laughs> I wasn't doing editing. There's a, yeah. there's a, gate, there's a gate on the microphone. On you can't the, put a the gate mo- on me, mate. No, because I just – so it's, it's unless it's, unless wasn't it's, quite like that. But. Unless it's Phil Collins. The <laughs> <laughs> reverse game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, show, yeah, I met uh, my wife on a show called Steel City, which was uh, the show that was written after Tap Dogs, which is a, a famous Australian yes. tap dancing export. And, yeah, in the space of a couple of months I met Tim Finn and I was auditioning for this show on drums. And uh, she was one of the dancers and, you know, it took a while. We, we you know, we, we became friends and stuff. But and then I look back and that was 1997, mm. uh, which – and I, all of a sudden I've got Tim Finn telling me what to do or, you know, <laughs> you know I'm auditioning in front of Tim Finn. That's cool. Uh, which was which is an amazing moment. And also because, you know, I'd come from, you know, a different bra- background as well that uh, – you just don't know where you're going to go, Stevie. You just you just don't know. Yep. It doesn't like you, if I told you, you know, uh, five years before I was studying classical music at the conservatorium, and then a couple of years later I was playing, you know, sold out theaters with Wendy Matthews, and then I'm on tour with with the Tap Dogs. Yep. Uh, or I'm still in my twenties. Uh, it was a bit. It never felt overwhelming, but you look. I look back and I go, I'd, I'd have a heart attack if I did. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it, yeah, it was like because yeah. you're so uh, engaged in that moment. You're right. so like, oh yeah, I'm do- that's it. I've, I've, someone's called me. I'm doing this, or I'm auditioning for this. I'm auditioning for that. You know, I think that's um, also as a, as a drummer, and I I think that <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, not really there's a perception out there that you just things just land in your lap. But I auditioned for a lot of stuff that I got yep. bef- before I got it. I yep. mean, I actually went out there and I was asked to audition and I and I, 
I'd put down whatever it took, like recordings or I'd go there. Most of them were, you know, face-to-face. But a lot of the gigs that I did early on, I auditioned for all of them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I knew that there were other people auditioning for them as well. Right. Friends of mine. Right. Colleagues. Yep. You know. Uh, so um, I'm not sure what the answer was to that question, that first question. To but, be honest, I can't remember what the question uh, what was. What was the question? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're here in my house in Maricourt. Yeah, yeah, hi. Yeah, well, yeah. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> no, Joe Akari. start again. <laughs> What's your name? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? Who yeah, are you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that's – that's the, even this room. Just look back. You know, you look at there's pictures of you know the Human Nature Boys and David Campbell and Velvet, all this stuff. I just look around and go, ah, oh, it's not really a wank that I've got. I've got to go look around. and Go, okay, yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, that was good. Next time we'll, we made it better and we made it better and we worked on it. Yeah, I think that's um, that's also a reflection of, of the people that I've worked with as well. Right. Lucky enough to be working with them, but. They all like work their asses off right. to do what they're doing. Right. So fame is not really just the thing that. Oh, okay. I, I know it can happen, but you look at some of the people that that I've worked with. I, there's nothing that that has ever said to me that they didn't deserve anything that came to them because of uh, the fact that they work so hard. Right. And they were like, they're in their craft. ...is as important as my craft. Right, gotcha. And they respected my craft as well and, and vice versa, you know. Not to, you know, uh, not to say there weren't problems along the way. Of course. Mate, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's rewind right back to where it all began. Um, were you born in Sydney? Oh, you grew up in Punchbowl, you told me. I, um, I did grow up in Sydney. I was born in Sydney. My parents came from Sicily... Uh, in the late 60s. My brother was two. I was born in 1971. Uh, I grew up in Campsie, Canterbury, and then we went to Summerhill. And then just before high school, I think my parents moved to uh, the Bankstown area in Greenacre. So I went to school at Punchbowl. But while, while I was, when I was in year seven, the hard-ons were in year 12. Yeah, right. At Punchbowl. At Punchbowl, yeah. At Punchbowl. And my brother was also in year 12, so he knew them as well. So, oh, yeah, my, my brother's – he wants to be a drummer. Uh, so, yeah, I was born in Sydney. Yep. Yeah, born and bred. Um, musical, fam- musical mum and dad? No. Not at all? No. Um, so how did music come about? Uh, it's, it's often been a theory that my parents – my parents told me that when I was, a, I was at a, a, an Italian wedding when I was two years old. And, you know, the Italian weddings have the, the reception band at the back and the, the, they've got the tables and they've got the, you know, the wine. I was just too, I was crawling. Uh, apparently I just ran up to the bandstand, there was a stairs and a, uh, apparently I just sat there and watched the drummer uh, all night. I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave because I was sort of fascinated by this, this pressing the pedals and, and then there's this other music going on. And I don't actually remember it but they told me that right. they couldn't get me off the bandstand. And this sort of repeated a few times. So when I was four, I went to, you know, another engagement party at another reception hall. These are all around, you know, Leichhardt, Five Dock, you know, all those reception halls, which eventually I ended up playing in right. when I was a teenager. Uh, so we could fast forward to that. But yep. 
Yeah, but that was there. There wasn't any music in my family at all. Right. And I've 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 been to Sicily. Uh, I've talked to my family. They're like there. Are, there's no one within generations, like three or four, five generations. That really. No one played music. No. Wow. They're all just. They were all laborers and workers and uh, farmers. Right. You know? And my father came out here because he was a, a specialist in. Remember pebble creating? You know that. Yeah. That, yeah, so he's a pebble creator. My probably did my pool, maybe. <laughs> no doubt, yeah. he did. He did a lot of pools. Yeah, right. Because he had this specialty, and so uh, one of our uncles brought him over, and all of a sudden, we they were here, uh, and he was working nonstop. You know, just pebble creating. You know, rich people's pools. Yeah, right. eventually a, a mess with his back, so he's 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 not great at the moment, but he's still going. He's eighty-one. Uh, he calmed down a little bit. He stopped doing that, the hard labour stuff. But throughout that period, I, I'd, I'd go and, you know, just sort of sit and watch him work. And it was a different thing in the 70s. You know, my, my grandfather would come from Sicily and look after me because both my parents had to go to work. You know, that's, that's the way it worked, you know. My brother was at school and, you know, I was still a kid and, you know, I'd be looked after by anybody, you know. Uh, there was a point, I think, in, um, in the 70s where... My parents were thinking about going back to Italy. So they sent me back uh, on my own. Right. Uh, How old were you then, sorry? I was eight. Well, seven or eight, yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, they sent me back to, to Sicily to sort of learn the, the way and they, they said back then you could, you could just sit on someone's lap or right. you, they knew someone that was travelling to Sicily. Gotcha. And go, you look after my son. He's going to this place. He's going to be, get picked up from here and... <laughs> Before mobile phones. Crazy, eh? It's crazy, yeah. Scary to think of that shit now, yeah. man. Far out. That's right. But eventually, um, yeah, long story short, he, I think uh, my old man saw the light and went, no, I think we want to stay in Australia. So um, I'm glad he did. Yeah. Because I've been there a few times. I love it. I love being there. I've got an Italian passport as well, which, right. you know, I could fast forward to stories where that's helped me in, you know, working in musical theatre in London and shows, having a European passport is right. a really cool thing to have. But you have to wait till you're after 27 because of military service. So I could, I still had to do military service up until the age of 27. So I waited till I was 28 and then right, got, I got my you. passport. I got yeah. So but does that does that mean – so let's fast forward just a little bit so I can ask this question. So um, does that mean you don't have to have a working visa? Uh, in Europe, yes. In Europe, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a European citizen. Right, cool. Yeah. With Brexit, and uh, we're not going to go into Brexit. Right. But with Brexit now, if that does happen, then there are problems with right. with working in the UK. Now, you know, you know, my, uh, you know as I said to you before, we, you press record, and my career is changing all the time. I'm doing different things. But what it does do is that for some musicians, it's harder to get work or to decide that you want to go and work in Europe uh, or especially the UK because of Brexit if you've got an, uh, a European passport. Right. Because I've got a European passport. I go, well, I can go to work on the West End. I could play musicals. I could, I could play drums for whoever I want if I'm good enough, obviously. But now that that's there, you just go, well, well maybe I shouldn't. But mm. the other parts of Europe, yeah. Mm. And I was... Fortunate enough to get a job with Tap Dogs, which we talked about before, where 
it was traveling around the world, but it was based in the UK. So I was I was paid in pounds. Even in the you know the, the late nineties and early two thousands, where I could work out my own way of distributing that money in terms of tax, because and this is the thing I always say to young musers: like, okay, you're going to be earning this much money, great. What are you doing about tax? Are you going to bring that money back into Australia? Are you going to? Is going to be offshore? Like all this stuff is really important, and I I often stress this to young performers, not just musicians, drummers. Uh, musical theatre performers, dancers, actors, and go, oh, yeah, I've got this great job in London. Great, I'm going to make all this money. When you come back, it's not going to be all that money. You've got to make sure you know what to do with it when you come back. You know, and without, we won't talk about offshore accounts and stuff like that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a couple, but <laughs> not anymore. The tax man's got my number now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm well and truly entrenched in the Australian taxation system. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, man. All right. So let's go back to um, when did you get your first drum kit or when did you actually start playing and, and did you get lessons straight away? Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I got a drum kit when I was four and it was like a toy little thing and I trashed it straight away, broke everything. And my old man went, that's it, no more. Sicilian, hard man, like, that's it. You're never ever playing it, that's it. You're not getting a drum kit ever again. I was, I was heartbroken, you know, four years old. It's sort of, I, always, I knew what I wanted to do at four years old, Stevie, which is. Why did you, why'd you trash the drum kit? Well, it was just made of like, it was just shit house. It was just one of these toy drum kit things. I went straight through this. Oh, thing. right, okay, I, okay, I thought you'd you know, yeah. been watching Keith Moon or. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, I sort of, yeah, I sort of had. I've been watching Rob Hurst and <laughs> all sorts of people. Uh, uh, yeah. So eventually, when I was thirteen, I'd saved up for money, the money to get a enough for a kit at um, Billy Hyde's, which was back then at Norton Street in Leichhardt. Right. And uh, I was doing a paper run. I was. I was quite tall when I was 13. I was a good basketballer as well. I'd carry plates. So, I mean, we, I was working, you know, what Italians are like. I mean, you, as soon as you're 13, 12, go out to work. Right. So, I, I, you know, I was saving up some money. So I went to Billy Hyde's and uh, I remember Luther, the guy that I still talk to him on Facebook actually, the guy that sold me the drum kit. It actually belonged to Steve Presswich. Really? From Chisel. Yeah, it was his – it was um, – one of those old Pearl Maxwin things, but it was like had this weird thatched uh, cover on it. It, was, it looked like a tablecloth, but Steve had just gone, I, I don't want it anymore. Right. Guys, this, this is, and it was, it was um, back then, it was 400 bucks for the whole kit, everything, you know, five piece. Like, and I had 400 bucks. I, was like, I just got it straight away. Yep. So I was 13, went to lessons. I pl- um, place called, um, what was it called, Lombardo's in Five Dock and in Bankstown. So I'd switch. I had two lessons a week because I was, you know, I was super keen. Obsessed, yep. yeah. Abs- yep. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so you, you switch between the two places? Yeah, yeah. Yep, I'd, cool. Yeah, I'd go and have double lessons, yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, the drummer uh, in Bankstown, his name's Colin. Colin, if you're listening, I, I can't remember who said that, but he, he used to know the drummer from Tears for Fears because he was English. Right. He's like, 
uh, I think his name was Blas Elias or something from Tears for Fears, the original drummer. And he said, oh, this is, I've got his transcription from uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's on tour with, and we go, do you want to learn how to play? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so he, he was friends with this guy. He had like sheet music from, from this guy from uh, Tears for Fears. So I'm like, this is brilliant. He started me straight onto songs. He was like, first of all, it was Billie Jean. Then it was Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Then it was Rosanna. Then it was like Phil Collins, Inside Out. Then it was uh, Susudio. He was just like one after the other, songs, songs, songs. Great. And I didn't know it at the time. But I I loved it because I was playing songs of, you know, that I was listening to that music anyway. Uh, And plus technique and, you know, he was always about, okay, first ten minutes we do rudiments and, you know. uh, So, you know, what's... uh, he wouldn't even ask me what song I wanted to learn after months and months. He'd just go, here you go. This is the song you're learning, Billie Jean, 1982, Thriller. So, yeah, I know this one. And I was a, I was a big fan of uh, lots of music. I was a fan of Michael Jackson, James Brown, Prince. Uh, but I was also an Oz music fan, like Midnight Oil and In Excess later on, but... Um, you know, Oscar, all that stuff. I'm like, you're getting saturated by all this amazing music yep. at the time. And I'm st- I'm just like in year seven. Yep. And so you can imagine being like that young guy, this is all I want to do. I just wanna I just wanna play this stuff, you know. So I got lessons throughout all, all my high school. Which which I again, I'm glad I did it because so I just needed to be steered a little bit. When it got to a little bit later in high school, if this is what you want to hear, about year 11, I started learning percussion. Uh, congas, you know, xylophones, marimbas, uh, vibraphone, timpani, bass drum, orchestral snare drum because luckily enough, uh, my school was pretty rough, punch bowl, but it did have... The teachers were great, so they, they would always expose us to great music. Uh, and we do school spectaculars and we'd play with Ricky May and James Morrison would come to our school because we were one of those disadvantaged schools right. programs. <laughs> we weren't disadvantaged at all because we were getting all this great... All the cool stuff. All this cool stuff, you know. And my teachers were like, look, you know, you, you're good enough. What do you want to do, there was the other side of punch bowl, which was the the dodgy side. The, you know, we were always sort of a little bit maligned as musicians. You know, oh, you guys are all you know always up in your music rooms doing all your shit, and like, you know, you ever come and like, you know, bash people with us or go and like play soccer? And it's like, I'm not really interested in that. I, and then yeah, there it wasn't easy because. But when they, they started seeing that we were out of school, you know, at least one day a week going off to do something, like, how do you guys do this? Like, mate, this is what we've been practicing for, you know. So we were we were fortunate. We had good teachers. They they brought good people. I was learning drums from John Morrison, uh, James Morrison's brother. John, if you're listening, thanks, mate. He taught me how to to swing. Like, I was a bit of a I was a bit of a rockhead, you know. Like, I I loved that stuff, but. When he came and just showed me some nuances around the drums, I was like, oh, okay, this is different. And then, then the teachers went, look, you, you should go to music school. We think you could be okay. Uh, 
you should try and get into the Conservatorium of Music. Now, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, 16, you don't really, you don't really know that what's going to happen. But there's this sort of, there was also in the back of my mind, it was also that my parents came here, they wanted a good life for us and they worked their asses off to do it. And they wanted my brother and I to have a proper education. So I decided, look, you know, I'll try and get in the conservatorium. I didn't know, I didn't even know what I was doing, Stevie. I had no idea. I just practiced all this stuff that that people sent me, and then I went to lessons with a guy called Ken Lang, uh, Clanger, uh, in Gladesville, twice a week. Clanger. I used to call him Clanger, but he, I just was working that out my head. Yeah, yeah. Clanger Ken, if you're listening, I'm sorry, mate. K Lang. But for fast forward, he got me a gig with playing drums for Andrea Bocelli. Uh, what? Year, like years later, you know, he was he'd get me to, to play symphony gigs, playing drum kit with the SSO and uh, all sorts of stuff. Man, that's cool. Yeah, and he was my teacher like years and years before. So he he was hardcore. Right. He's like you know, if you imagine, uh, we're talking 1987. Yeah, you know, he's he's smoking, sitting there. I'm learning to play, you know, some sort of marimba or vibraphone thing, and he's just like, "Stop sticking your tongue out, and whack me <laughs> with a stick." And yeah, you know, it was just yeah, you know, old school. Is that whiplash type stuff? Yeah, that's, it was a bit like that. When I saw whiplash, I went, "Oh no, it's oh no, nothing. no, there's nothing. nothing. No, there's nothing. Imagine, I'll show." <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't have mobile phones back there, so right. but I'll I could tell you some stories, but. What he did is he, he kicked my ass. He really, he, uh, without knowing, made me focus on something rather than everything. Right. Uh, so he did, for two years I went to lessons with him and my dad used to drive me there until I could drive myself. I, I, sometimes I would drive myself without a licence but, you know. I We're talking about I, the eighties. Don't tell anyone. I won't tell anyone. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd have a beer at the Bay Bayview Tavern in Glazeville. But on your way, on your way to listen. On the way back home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was hardcore. But yep. Uh, really, again, you know, you're steered by people. That that's that's the thing. You know, you, you can't. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't look at my. What, what I'm doing now as anything apart from the fact that it's all just these little roadmaps that have gone, oh, that person did this, oh, I saw that person and then I went to that place and and it wasn't until I got in the conservatorium where I thought, oh, shit, you know, this is the real deal. Uh, it was hard. It wasn't easy. And then I realised I'd got into the classical course. I wasn't playing drums at all. I was right. playing percussion. Right. Classical percussion. I thought I was just going to be like the drum kit guy, but it's not that. I had to learn all this other stuff. Eventually, it became known that even in orchestral circles, there's a lot of uh, music that was written for, for you know, ensembles and drum kit as well. So I'd always get the drum kit parts. Right. There was a piece called uh, Bonham that was written for four percussionists and solo drums. I'm like, I put my hand up. I'm like, yes, Bonham, of course. Uh, so you listeners out there, check out uh, Bonham. It's just all drums, but it's based on John's greatest grooves. Right. Okay, that's cool. But while I was at the conservatorium, I played that that piece. I spent you know weeks and weeks learning it. Right. 
pages and pages of music, you know. So, yeah, it was a good um, – it was a good education. And uh, you graduated with master's – with a master's degree. The, I, uh, honours. Oh, honours, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apologies. I'm actually still enrolled in master's. I just haven't had time to right, okay. start it. I wanted to do it in 2002. I went to Cuba to – study percussion with some of the um, Afro-Cuban all-stars percussionists. Oh, wow. And I called the con, I went, like, I went, conservatory, I went, oh, do you reckon I could do my master's in Cuba? And they're like, no, you have to spend at least the first year doing academic studies. I'm like, you know, fuck that. I just want to go to Cuba. So I went to Cuba. I was doing gigs. I had enough money. I could do it. Uh, but, yeah, I had an honours degree. So, yeah, I just... Yeah, it was one of those things, Stevie. I just worked my ass off to, yep. to do it. And, but I was a little bit like, yeah, I think they could tell that I wasn't going to be the classical sort of guy, you know. Uh, but great training. Like some of – all of my stick technique comes from classical. Right. All that stuff. Yeah. All I, – I, I wouldn't be able to play the way I play if I didn't have that training. Right. No, no doubt. Right. Yeah. And we all have training in different ways, but that just sort of focused me on like snare drum technique, doing very, very intense classical rudimentary stuff. Uh, and because I was like 18, 19, 20, I could do it. But at the same time, I was still playing in bands, you know. I was still doing gigs and, you know. I was in a, a band called The Strange, which was a, a funky, you know, sort of quirky, funky band that we, we, we were – playing gigs three nights a week as well as, you know, doing studies, you know. You could still play you at the Hopeton, the Annandale and the Lansdowne back yeah, then. Yeah. In one week yep. as the same band. Yep. Because people would just still come. Even if it's like 15 people, you still play to them, you know. So I was still doing gigs and I felt that that was like going to be where I'd end up or maybe that was sort of part of the um, – Understanding music as well, understanding that that full, the full circle of of what I wanted to do, you know. Right. So, um, tell us a little bit more about Cuba. Cuba, I went to in um, two thousand and two. I'd um, I just two thousand two thousand three. Yeah, <clears throat> I'd just done a tour with uh, Human Nature actually, mm-hmm. and uh, wanted to go and uh, I just wanted to go and experience it. Just be part of it. And I'd met some people that had, uh, I think his name is Leandro Mena. Leandro, if you're listening, it's me. Uh, they, they were doing a, a Cuban show in at Star City, which is now the Star City, the old casino. Mm-hmm. And there's this drummer, a percussionist, like he was playing, you know, you know, the old clave with the left foot and playing timbal. It's like monster, 19-year-old kid. He says, when you're in Cuba, look, look for me, look for me, if you can't. Like, so I did and I found him. It's like, how did, I mean, you, how did you find them? Well, I just I just walked around and asked. <laughs> I just really, asked, yeah, right. I just walked around and asked people. Yeah, <laughs> do you know? Uh, yeah, donde este Leandro? Yeah. Oh, Leandro is up there. So, yeah, I'd get lost. What? Nine <laughs> times out of ten, but yeah. eventually I found him. He was, he was still young, but mm. then he introduced me to some of the some of the other guys in uh, in his circles as well. It was just a just one of those things you do, Stevie, where you you just I. I if I'm going to play some of this stuff, I'm going to start playing congas and start integrating some of this music into my drumming, I need to go to the source. Yeah, you know? that's cool. Uh, and that, I could have done that with Africa. I could have done that with Brazil. 
uh, I just chose Cuba because you know that was that was what I chose at the time. But that was two thousand and two, three. So I spent some time in LA and I met drummers like Greg Bissonette, all sorts of people. Mm. It was great. It was a really cool time. Mm. Um, but yeah, before that, I I toured with Wendy Matthews. And, right. Uh, I'd done a few European tours with Floyd Vincent and the Child Brides. So it was a a total like left of centre artist that uh, was. Uh, signed to Universal at the time, so sort of in that sort of bit of pop world, a bit of a bit of uh, indie world at the same time. But as soon as I got out of the con, if I go back to yep. like 1992, 93, yep. is where I got the gig with uh, Wendy. Uh, and Wendy Matthews was sort of a, a big deal at the time. Yep. She had a few hits and one arias, and they they were looking for. They're looking for a percussion, a drummer who could stand up and play drums and percussion at the same time and sing. I'm like, I just said, yeah, I can do that. Of course I said, yeah, I said that. Not, <laughs> I didn't know I could do that but I said, yeah, I could do that. Uh, that one I didn't have to audition for. I went to a rehearsal which was sort of an audition and I, I, mean, I, I, st- I listened to her songs and... I studied everything. I right. made sure I knew every every detail, you know. And that's also that's a residual effect of being at the conservatory where like you've got to learn your stuff. And I thought, well, okay, I've got to learn this woman's music. I learned everything. Mm. Uh, do you know such and such? Standing strong. Yep. Do you know Let's Kiss? Yep. Do you know Woman's Got to Have It? Got it. Yeah. Same thing happened when I started playing with Barnsley. It's like, do you know Cheap White? Yep. Got it. Forever Now. Yep. Do you know Flame Trick? Of course I do. Do you know, like, it's just that sort of your life experiences are sort of like studying as well. Right. But as a musician, you can't forget that. That uh, that preparation is really important. You know, I was just lucky that you know I just had enough time to to get in there and do it. So yep. yeah, so yeah, it was it was a the nineties was you know I was I was a bit of a session. I, I love doing the sessions as well because there were sessions. Right. There were lots of drum sessions. I'd, you know, do three or four a week. Right. You know, as long as you got a car and your kit, mate, you could go anywhere. Mm. Uh, and I'd do ads for Songzu and all sorts of stuff, right. you know. But the touring stuff I liked, you know. Was there a preference? Uh, yeah, you know, it's like it's, all, it's the thing where, where when shit gets hard, there's always a preference that you wouldn't want to be doing it, but <laughs> I think I preferred playing live. Right. Okay. I preferred playing in front of people. Right. Yeah. I I love that feeling, not because you know, not because they had any sort of uh, it didn't pertain to my ego that much because I was paying I was playing for superstars anyway. It was they were the stars. I wasn't the star. I was like, how how good is this? I'm playing with I'm playing at the Palais Theatre or I'm playing at you know. You know the opening of the Olympic Stadium with mm. the Bee Gees supporting the Bee Gees in front of one hundred twenty thousand people. Like, were you playing in that band with the Bee Gees? I was playing in Wendy's band, right, who right, supported. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I met the Bee Gees that night. Yeah, I saw that show. Yeah. Right. I remember seeing that show too. I was yeah. On TV. Watching yeah, yeah. TV. Yeah. 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 We were just side of stage going, you know, blurry eye. We're watching the Bee Gees. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think the the live thing was um, look. The, I think there's uh, 
I love being in the studio. Like I said to you before, and I, we just, I've just been in 301 doing a new album with DC. Yep. David Campbell. Uh, I still love that. I love going to the studio and, and recording. Uh, I actually am doing a lot more music production myself. Yep. Uh, which is a combination of sampling myself, drumming and uh, doing music for, for different shows now, which is sort of, again, that it's good to have that residual effect of being in studios a lot and recording and having people say, no, let's do it again, let's do it again. No. So, for example, you know, the other day on Monday uh, we did uh, 11 tracks in about 10 hours. We used to spend like 11 hours on one, one track. track. yeah, yeah. And the whole thing's changed. You know, that, that whole perception of of what recording is isn't as, as grand as it, what, it, what it used to be. And I, I, I get why we spent a day on one track, but you probably didn't have to. Yeah. We probably had the budgets. They had the budgets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't mind. Mm-hmm. It was paying my rent mm. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Just while we're on 301... Um, that did that get sold not too long ago? That kind of started to go out of business, and then I read something, read something the other day that this entrepreneur brought it, or bought it, sorry, and um, you know, it's not making any money for him, but he bought it and he's sort of building it up so the musicians and the producers come through, and they've it's giving them a bit of a future. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that story? Yeah, I, I, oh, yeah. I've seen it firsthand as well. Right. Yeah, they're even just walking through the corridors there. You sort of bump into people, and I think what they're trying to create there is 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 quite valid. You know, like similar to what you're saying. Uh, the recording rooms. I mean, the the big recording room isn't as big as it was back in Alexandria, but still pretty good. They pull a good sound. They've still got the old gear as well. Yeah, they've got the same desk and the you know the engineers there are pretty good. So, yeah, uh, yeah I like what they're doing there. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a fascinating world, the the studio world, because the the commercial studio world has changed so much. Yep, yep. I mean, if you look at look, that little keyboard there, that hard drive that's plugged in there, my computer, yep. I could do all the music for Velvet right now. Yep, I've got it all there. I don't have to go to three. I want to do it, but I I did. I went there. You know, I record drums, or I'd go to another studio and record vocals here, and we do strings and horns in Melbourne, because that the idea of recording music yep. is still there. It's important to have the right sounds. Uh, I could just do some dodgy backing tracks if you wanted me to, but I don't want the, I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's cool, man. It's Marsha Hines. You know, I'm yeah, like, yep. she's not going to sing to that stuff. You know. Uh, she will hear that they're real horns yep. and real strings, yep. but uh, I think these days it's about trying to uh, economize the way you do record as well. Because one, the studios were way expensive back then. Uh, uh, running a, com- a commercial studio isn't easy because most people can do it here. Look, That's it. Okay. I can do it here. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. If you want me to do a cover of something, I could probably whip it up. Yep. Uh, It'll take me a while, but I know, I know. Maybe I have to sn- uh, blow my nose and have a good <laughs> sleep. But, but you know what I mean. Like everyone's yeah. got a home studio these yeah, days. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but no one has a real drummer. Yep. And as good as some of the 
samples and, you know, the logic. A real drummer's a real drummer. Even when I go and record music for my own shows that I'm part of the design team of the music, I always record my own real drums. Yeah. Even if it's just sitting here with a hi-hat and a mic and making sure I've got real hats. I saw a... An Instagram video yeah. today of you doing that, right? Sitting recording, and you had somebody here, and you just you're doing a disco, you're doing a disco, disco thing, and it was just just the hi hats. I thought it was just awesome. I thought it was great. Yeah, oh, I programmed the drums from a lot of my own samples. Yeah, and I went, oh, well, that snare drum I recorded for that song, I got a sample of that. Nice fat disco, you know, Ludwig, you know, six and a half, you know, uh, superphonic. Even though I'm endorsed by Sonor, let's say. <laughs> They, they let me use other snares, but uh, even some of those those snares are all sampled from recordings that I've done. Because I go to the engineers, hey, mate, can I just get a couple of hits from my snares? Oh, cool. Because then I can use them in my own shit. Yep. Right? But hi-hats. Yeah, hi-hats. You can't program hi-hats. Yeah, yeah. You can. You can. Mm. And I'll, I'll – anyone that can program a real drummer playing real hi-hats – I'll um you know I'll bow down to you gracefully because mm. it's not about it's, it's all about velocity it's about yep. where you hit on the on the the side of the hats the tip of the the stick whether it's a nylon tip or like where you open the hi hat the, the 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 different permutations of how you can open a hi hat are so big yep you know the angle of the symbol yep. all this sort of crap I always have to record live hi hat yeah, always. And there was a point there also where I was doing some disco stuff in the 2000s where people would just come in, they go, can you do hi-hat, tambourine and shaker? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all we want you to do. Yep. I do country sessions, shaker, tambourine, hi-hat. Can you just do... No worries. And now when you're not playing a drum kit, as you know, it's not easy to separate yourself and go, okay, I'm only just... So you're sort of air drumming the rest yeah, of it yeah, going to yeah. – t- But it, that's one motion that you can't replicate. You know, kick drums, snare drums, toms, they're all single hits. Hi-hats, it, it's a whole another world. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's a funny one. No, that's cool. I think uh, I think it's always important for me to to you know when I when I think of economizing like I was saying like uh, home studio it's like no Actually, let's just get a shitty 57 and record some hi-hats just live and it just goes, whoop, the whole track just lifts and mm. Ah, mm. almost sounds real, mm. even even though it's not that real. Yeah. But if I do have the budget and the time, I go in there with a kit and yeah. I just, I'll just book a studio for half a day. Mm-hmm. It's not much, like 300, 400 bucks. Yeah. I get to take away beautiful recordings of my own drums mm. recorded by – Great engineers with good microphones, and then that's mine. I is, paid is for that, it. Is that all it costs? Well, I mean, if let's say a studio is like seven hundred bucks a day, right? That's including engineer. Including engineer, yeah. Mm. I can just go in there and record drums, right, for half a day. In three and a half hours, I could, I should be able to play a lot of good shit, yeah, or just sample my own stuff. Yeah, uh, most of the sessions that I still do, I always get to take away some. Some of the hits. That's cool. Yeah. Like, can you send me like you know, a snare drum hit that I recorded at the end of the session? You know? Wonder how many people think to do that. 
Yeah. To do it, yeah, right. To, yeah. To take away their own take stuff. Take away their own stuff, yeah, yeah. Well, you might as well. You might as well, yeah, absolutely. There's no there's no law that says you, sh- you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. What, what I've always been accustomed to is at the end of a session, the engineer or producer will go, okay, can we get some single hits of all the drums? Right, okay. And they record it either to tape back in the day or to Pro Tools or mm. so you do like single snare hits, a couple of, you know, rim shots, toms, singles. And you go, wait a sec, that's that's my drum kit. Mm. That's They're my sounds. I tune that drum kit. Mm. This is at the end of the recording. And then I, just, you know, casually just go, can you just bounce that, a wav of those drum hits for me and send it to me? I'm like, of course, mm. no worries. Now, whether that's legal or not. Right. It depends who pays for it. Yeah. You know. yeah. If I pay for it, it's fine. But Exactly. But they will use those samples if they need to. Yep. And there's, you know, yeah, that we're going into another dark area of, you know, drum sampling that maybe we, we, we don't want to go there. But there's, you know, there's been occasions where my drums have been sampled and used on other people's tracks. And, and you've heard them? And I've heard them. Oh, shit. And I've had people calling me... Mate, your snare drum sounds great on that song. So, what song? What song are you talking about? Oh, that such and such song. I was like, I didn't play on that. I didn't play on that. Oh shit! But I know who produced it. Or you know. Okay. But let's not go there. No, soon. okay. Because we want to make this a happy po- <laughs> podcast tonight. Yeah, okay. Good stuff. Uh, but again, great learning curve. Yeah. You know, really important to acknowledge those times. Yeah. Uh, even though. You know, I may have been paid more or less or exploited or – it was my choice. I did it. I was there. Right. So I'm happy that I, I understand that. But from a production point of view, it's great to know that and that I can use that stuff yep. for, you know, uh, other projects. Cool. You know, Very yeah. good. So what came after Wendy Matthews? Uh, after Wendy Matthews was uh, uh, the show Steel City where I met. Right. My wife, Leah. Right. And that was Tap Dogs. Yep. I'd seen Tap Dogs uh, at the Sydney Theatre Company in 1995 and went, I want to be in this show. Right. Took me age, it took me another 10 years to get in the show. But in the interim... Were you, were you actively seeking to get in there? Not exactly, but, but in the interim we did Steel City, okay. which was the same creator, which yep. is Dean Perry. Yep. Uh, uh, amazing man and tap dancer. That's where we did Steel City, which was with Tim Finn. So that sort of catapulted me into another world completely because were, these were theatres. It wasn't Th- a rock. This was the first theatre. The first theatre Theatre type. Th- okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. But it just so happened that Tim Finn was the composer. Right. So he, we were just sitting there. He was writing stuff and he'd be like, let's play it and we record it. And it was amazing mm. to work with him. Was that here in New Zealand? It was here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It was in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now he's back in NZ. But mm. yeah, I ended up doing a few gigs with him as well. Like, it was he was so supportive. Mm-hmm. I was still like in my mid-twenties as well. Right. You know, first theatre experience. Uh, and I played with um, – I was in an audition. Uh, this guy from Melbourne called Lawrence Maddy, Greg Hitchcock, guitarist who played with UMI. And they didn't have a bass player. So I was up at Sun Studios in Kippack Street in Surrey Hills. And around the corner from Sun Studios was another studio where the Rockmelons – had their studio as well and I said oh we need a bass player 
and I, I, I was auditioning and then they go, okay, great, we need a bass player. Like, oh, I was, do I, have, have I got the gig? Or, <laughs> I just assumed that are we all, am I still, I had no idea to be honest. Uh, around the corner was a guy called Dario Bortolin, mm-hmm. Dario, Dars. And he was playing some sessions for the Rock Melons and he was like, oh, it came in, auditioned for Steel City, got the gig right. and the band was there. Right. And eventually we toured Australia, uh, we ended up in New York and that took, yeah, that took us up to the, about the, you know, up till the 2000s. Then through the connection with Dean and the show, I got, got to work on the 2000 Olympics, got to do some different stuff where... Uh, and even in Steel City, I was doing you know drum solos on on lockers and people's hard hats and stuff. Right, cool. Where it was a totally mm. they're like, how do you feel about coming down from the drums and doing a bit of a solo on someone's head? Like, sure. <laughs> how do you feel about coming <laughs> coming uh, on for the finale, strapped into a, the back of a Holden Ute, the drums standing up like bolted to the yeah. you know to yeah. the treads of a, the back of a Ute. Australia, mate. Australia. I'm like, of course, yeah, sure, no worries. Uh, and that sort of opened up this, yeah, these guys are just, I thought these guys were mad. Mm. But they were creative as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're going to have forklifts going up and tap dance are going to tap dance and all these forklifts are going to do all these different dances and mm. you, you guys are going to come out, the band's going to be on this gantry. Like, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Once we were in there. I knew what was going on. Right. But this was a theatrical rock experience, yep. you know, with 16 tap dancers as well. So for me it was eye-opening not only to see the, the venues and the, and the theatre and the way that these shows were put together, but to see, like, play with tap dancers where, they, where their sense of rhythm was totally different to ours. Mm. Totally different. And they can do stuff that we could dream of doing yep. with their feet. With their feet, yeah. With their feet. Yep. Amazing. And I'm just sitting there watching them going, what's, how, do, how are you counting that? Well, so I'm counting it, you know, because they count in eight. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They, they look at blocks of eight. Right. Where we look at, we look at four, blocks of four. Yeah. A great joke, you know, I can only count to four. <laughs> so I'm going, oh, yeah, okay, great. So you look at, you start learning phrasing over these massive long bars of these dance routines. I'm like, I was losing my mind but also so excited by mm. watching what I was watching, you know, and listening to their the way they communicate their rhythms because the thing is like as drummers, we don't own rhythms. We don't own this stuff. It's owned by everyone. Yep. Like, so tap dancers can do their own interpretation of, of you know, four across three or whatever. They, they've got their own stuff. Mm. They're even doing... Things like across five, the bar, it just, it just took me ages to work it out. I go, what are you doing? Mm. You know? Um, was it was it charted? No. Wow. No, it was all improvised. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. So after a while, you'd sort of, you'd be able to kind of get your head around the phrasing. Yeah, that, that's that, right. I, there were structures in stru- place. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it was instrumental music with, with no vocals, mm. and it was all original written by Tim Finn. And with all these dancers. Mm. Uh, so it was all just hang on. Uh, mm. But, yeah, gradually you just sort of 
got to know the music and uh, you know weeks and weeks of rehearsal and you know uh, it was a good it was it really changed my my perspective a little bit I always I, I, mean, I love that idea of tap dancing and I love the idea of theatre but I never as a musician thought I'd be in it mm. and then I was in it mm. and watching all this stuff unfold in front of me and it sort of opened up a few things, yeah. So once you're, once you're in there, at that point where you're going, fuck, I want to be doing more of this theatre stuff. Yeah. At that stage. At that stage, that yeah. That was it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so after Tap Dogs and Steel City, what, yeah. what was next? Um, out of the theatre? Out of the theatre. Yep. Uh, 2002, I'd been doing, uh, yeah, I'd been touring around, doing lots of gigs and I got called to do a, a to come to audition for Human Nature. Uh, they were, you know, sort of in their, let's say, boy band phase, but yep. sort of going into, uh, you know, changing a little bit, but they were still, you know, pretty big. I sort of, I was a little bit flippant about the audition. I was like, oh, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. You know, but do I have to audition? So, and then I thought, no, stop being an asshole, just go and audition. <laughs> you know? And then I walked in, I knew all the guys in the band. Uh and we just started jamming and just, uh, I didn't really audition. I just sort of played around and uh, I hadn't learned any of the songs because I'd, I'd been up in Byron Bay the night before. Uh, God knows what I was up to the night before, Stevie. <laughs> but I wasn't well. Yeah. I, didn't have, I didn't have any drumstick. I had nothing. I just turned up this audition. Just got off the plane basically. Right. Uh, but the guys were great. The guys in the band were great and uh, they took me on. You know, I got the gig. Uh, so that sort of went for quite a while and in and around that period the boys released a Motown album, went to number one, they went to Vegas. We went to Vegas in 2009. In and around that I, was, I went back to Tap Dogs. I started working with David Campbell. You know, it's not just like these gigs don't go permanently. Right, they're you. like, okay, this and then it's like, oh, well then maybe, you'll, maybe I'll do this for six months and then, okay. you know, so I was, I was with the boys up until – you know, 2009 in Vegas. but Was this during the residency? Yes. The start of the residency? Yeah, okay, yep. I was there at the start. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. Imperial Palace. And they've just been re-signed for another... Another three years. Three yeah. years, cool. Yeah, of mm. course. They're bloody great. Killing it, eh? The boys are great. Mm-hmm. They, they know exactly... They, they know exactly what they're doing and they love what they're doing again. You know, it's a... It's, a, it's, it's an important thing that, to realise that you know, sometimes their dream is their dream and your your dream might become a nightmare or like I, I think that it just came to a point where I was like, you know what, you guys are set up, I, I, I want to go and do other things or, yep. you know, I just got married as well. So okay. um, I just want I, – I liked a lot of different projects as well. Uh and I, I believe me, mate. I've done shows where I'm doing the same show for months and months and months, but to do this, the same show for years and years and years, uh, it's great. But there's a point where creatively you you want to give a little bit more, you want to be a little bit more. And the boys made me their musical director, which you know from the drums, as as you know, is it's it's not entirely un- unique thing, but it's it's not the norm. Usually, you know, it's a, a piano player or a guitarist, yep. but. I was the MD, so they still, you know, the, they got me in on some of the arrangements, and I, I, I got to explore 
that world a little bit, arranging things for horn players, string players, band, just like, you know, what do you think about this accent? What if I do this, you know? And I suppose it just sort of came about from from running the show and just being on the kit, you know. So I owe the boys a lot of that, uh, a lot of the stuff that's happened to me since because they gave me the, the opportunity, the freedom to... to to be their MD, Not, like they're their own MDs. Like vocally, they know exactly what they're doing. But if someone's there going, eh, maybe if you did this or you tried this or we tried this accent, or it, it felt like um, it was a good time to to express myself a little bit more mm-hmm. as a drummer, and I became more of an MD as well. Mm. That's cool. And yeah. then, and then, like you said, you said there was that time where you thought, no, nah, it's probably time to. To go, mm-hmm. where did you go straight after that? Uh, well, it just so happens that in, yeah, it was 2009 that I got a call from some friends that were doing a show called Smoke and Mirrors for the Sydney Festival with a guy called Iota, who's, I'd known 10 years before as well, so I'd done gigs with him in the in the rock circles. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? Are we doing a, this circus show? The band's on stage, you guys are part of the whole show. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to come and do it? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't book my ticket fast enough, Stevie. Mm. It's because, you know, I, creatively I, I just wanted to do something new and different, you know. Uh, not to say that I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. It's just that it just I, I know op- it. opened up a few, little po- a few more possibilities, you know. Yep. So, yeah, I came back to Sydney in uh, 2009 from Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did Smoke and Mirrors, which Dif- went for about... Dif- different town by then? Uh? Sydney a bit of a different town by then? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Things have changed a little bit. I mean, I, th- I suppose that, you know, when you leave somewhere for, you know, six to nine to 12 months, mm. if there's a gig scene, you might not necessarily have that same yeah, scene yeah, when yeah, you yep. come back. Yep. Uh, and I knew that. I, you know, I I knew that I, I, f- I felt like I wanted to do more... Pro project-based music and theatre rather than do gigs because I'd done gigs for like 20 years. So not that I was tired of it. I loved playing. You know, but I, as you get these little projects, you go, oh, well, that's cool. Uh, okay. oh, that, yep. And it takes you away from that world. I understand. So I came back because I had no gigs. So I went straight back into the theatre, you know, started doing Smoke and Mirrors. Smoke and Mirrors uh, sold out the first season, took off. We made an album. Uh, it went to Edinburgh. We toured around the place for a while. It was a very successful show. Did you come back? Sorry, if I missed it, I apologise. Yeah. Did you come back as the MD, or you came back as as a member of the? Came back as a drummer. As a drummer. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Drummer percussionist. Yep. I've always had percussion on the kit, even yep. if it's a couple of congas, a little roll and SPD, or mm-hmm. you know what I mean, like mm-hmm. just have some sounds, you know. Yep. Not that I get bored. It's just it's good to – I want to sort of express things mm-hmm. uh, in a certain way and have access to sounds because yep. if I feel that they're required, I'll do it. If they're over the top and someone tell me that it's over the top, mm-hmm. it's good to be directed. Mm-hmm. As a musical director, I love to be directed by another musical director. Right. Love it. Mm. I have no problems with that at all. Mm-hmm. I love it. I learn. But I also respect that that it's it's the vision of – of, of a whole bunch of people. Mm. 
It's not about you as a musician. It's not about you as a drummer. Sure, we love playing drums and sure we're the loudest thing on stage but this is an extension of the vision of of these people or th- that person or that theatre show or that director and that lighting designer, the costumes, the, the, the you know, all this stuff has to come in into place mm-hmm. for something to happen. Mm-hmm. You can go and see a show, Stevie, I'm sure you have, where the band's rocking but the lights are shit. Yeah. You go, what? what? You walk out going, the lights were terrible. Mm. You don't go walk out going, the band was great. But the lights were terrible. You could say that but you're already tarnished. Like all these things need to work together. And I think I learned that, uh, you know, around about that time as well to sort of sit back and go, okay, you know what? I'm the drummer again. Mm -hmm. I can creatively do things because I'm in an environment that, sort of that is harnessing everyone's sort of creative in, uh, input and I like that. Mm. Uh, what would you do? What, you know, just do something. Or can you make it sound like this? Or can you, can you just try one, one, of that, one of those things that you did before? Like it's, mm. it's not necessarily scripted but right. you, you know, you, you're, you're open to it yep. as well. And... I think that that yeah, I was sort of craving that, and uh, that sort of you know helped me along the way a bit. Mm. I'll just go back a little bit when you mentioned the um, the uh, Roland SP SPD. The first time you came onto my radar, <laughs> first time I sort of found out who you were, and then um, I was looking for a electronic drum kit because the band I was playing at the time that. Um, the boss of the band wanted to play some venues where we had to sort of be quiet. So I started looking looking around for, for some e-kits. You know? Right. And, um, you know, was uh, researching Roland and you're fucking, you're fucking everywhere. <laughs> YouTube, YouTube Roland and there's the Joe Acaria guy mm. demoing this and demoing that. And, um, yeah, I just want to say that's, that's how, how you first sort of came onto my radar. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And and do you still associated with Roland? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah. Again, it's um, it's one of those things that, you know, opened my eyes a little bit to – I always loved, you know, electronic sounds, triggering. Uh, we'd done some of that stuff in Tap Dogs as well. But, uh, yeah, I was like – I started getting into a lot more of that, that stuff with, with Roland. And once I started using – some of their gear, they approached me and went, look, do you want to use some other stuff? I'm like, shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they would start giving me prototypes of stuff. Oh, and cool. I'd get stuff before they were in, you know, in full production and do you want to start recording some private videos of you learning how to use the stuff and we'll send it back to Japan. I'm like, sure. And I was learning how to use the stuff as well. So no doubt that was um, a bit of a game changer. Mm. Yeah, again, it felt natural, but it sort of opened things up a little bit. Mm. So I started using a lot more triggers, a lot more pads, SPD-SX, uh, Roland Hand Sonic, the HPD-20. Uh, I've got, you know, now I've got looper pedals. I've got a you know, little TM2 sampler thing, like all sorts of stuff mm. where I just go, yeah, I just want to 
orchestral bass drum on my floor tom yep. for that moment for that moment yeah yeah oh, I, and i learned how to trigger things by foot and mm. all that sort of stuff but uh those guys were also very very open and i and Simon Aiton, uh, if you're listening, Simon, thank you, uh, was always going, oh, mate, can you just come and demo this thing? I'm going, I have no idea how to use it. Like, that's the point. The point is we want to see someone learning how to use something for the first time oh, or, yeah, right. or what they've done after using something for a certain amount of time. Right. Uh, and that's what – I was attracted to that as well and I sort of started um, – uh, integrating some of that stuff in in my drumming and other shows as well. Yeah. So okay. So after the um, the show you were doing with um, Iota, what sort of what sort of came about after that? Um, yeah. After Smoke and Mirrors, um, we did uh, a few tours uh, for about two or three years. It was quite busy. Actually, we went to Edinburgh Festival. It was amazing. Like, mm. Playing in front of like in Spiegel tents and it was really quite, you know, uh, intense touring. We were doing eight shows a week. Mm. So this is the, you know. Mat- matinee stuff as well? Matinee stuff. Yep. As, well, yep. yeah, matinees as in you do a show at like. Lunchtime? No, you do a show at 6.30. Oh, right. And then you do another one two, at 9.30. Two night time shows. Yeah, yeah. More, more theatre, let's say musical theatre shows would do a matinee at like 1pm. Yep. And then they'll do the show at 7.30, all right? Yep, yep. We would do like, you know, two shows in a night. Okay. So we wouldn't call them matinees. We just called two show, you know, two show nights, double show nights, double header, double header. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you'd get people like you know six or seven, and then you'd get the rowdy crowd at nine thirty. Even uh, and we'll talk about Velvet, but yeah, I remember yeah, doing please. Velvet in in Edinburgh where we were doing a show at eleven thirty p.m. Mm. because the sun doesn't go down until nine thirty ten anyway, so it's oh, not right. dark. Right. It's not really that dark. In, a, in a, a tent, so the sun's still coming in, so you do a late show as well. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a, it was good to, it was good to interact with those creative types, and also I met a director called Craig Eilert, who directed Smoke and Mirrors, and uh, then called me up about five years ago uh, about a show called Velvet, where. Uh, he said, uh, mate, I want, you, I want you to have a look at this this song list I've got. I've got these songs and I'm thinking about a show, like a, a you know, a stage show, like a theatre show or, you know, an immersive theatre show, something in the round or in a tent, you know, like thinking mm. about a show. Mm. Uh, you know, so we started talking and uh, he showed me some songs. He went, uh, Marsha Hines is going to be in it. I went, oh, great. You know, disco. Marsha Hines, uh, what do you want me to do? He said, "I want you to be the um, I want you to be the musical director, and I want you to I also want you to produce the soundtrack for it as well, mm. produce the music because it was going to be those you know those shows that have predominantly track music but with a live musician. Mm-hmm. It's sort of built around you know." Uh, you know, Studio 54 in New York sort of thing, where it's like DJs, all that music. And it just, I just, it just sort of opened up my mind to this whole world of of disco stuff and I started listening to Nile Rodgers and Sheik and, man, we're talking some serious musicians, yeah, you, know, yep. you know, Tony Thompson on drums and stuff like that. 
And these guys used to go to New York Studio 54 with like a freshly pressed vinyl and go play our song, you know. So they, Craig had this idea of um, building this show uh, around Marsha uh, called Velvet. So uh, he also said, do you want to be in it? Do you want to be in the show? Do you want to – I think you should play this DJ character that plays drums as well. I'm like, of course. Uh, little did I know that I had to produce a soundtrack as well and uh, MD the show and get, do the vocal arrangements, do all the – you know, record everything. But in essence it became uh, – it was almost like an album project. So I was just producing an album mm. of great disco songs with a great singer like Marsha Hines. Mm. It just so happened that we were doing it live and they, they decided to integrate you know, aerialists. So people were flying through the air and people doing hula hoops and you know, balancing on you know, suitcases. And uh, it, was, yeah, it was pretty amazing to, to, to be in that, that world to go, yeah, this is what we're doing. And we rehearsed for three weeks, went to Adelaide in 2015 now and... Uh, sold out straight away. I mean, Marsha had a lot to do with that, I'm sure, but uh, the show itself wasn't, wasn't really about Marsha. It was about, about Velvet. Velvet was this place that you'd go into. Uh, and again, you know, it's this eye-opening stuff. And I was in the show, but I wasn't playing drums just backing a singer. I was, I was playing a character now. Mm. Playing a character, you know, triggering music that I'd produced for the show, you know. DJ Sam Booker. DJ Sam Booker. Fuck, that's a cool name, man. B-O-O-K-E-R, DJ Sam Booker. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you got that, Steve. Yeah, it took me a while, too, like I said to you before. Some people don't get it. I, re- I read it and I went, Sam Booker. <laughs> what? What? Where did that come from? And I said it a couple more times, Sam Booker. Sam Booker. Ah! Penny, yeah. dro- penny dropped. There it was. It's weird, yeah. It's great. And just to fast forward a little bit, recently I was in Melbourne... We did another show with the same creative team called Pigal for Sydney Festival. And I, I came back with one of my hard case snare cases uh, from Melbourne. And I, I opened up in the studio and one of my friends, uh, I, Yanya was there, Yanya Boston. I went, hey, look, what I've just, instead of a snare, it's a turntable. That's what my life's come to. Yeah. <laughs> because I was like, if you see that vinyl up there, like uh, on the piano there, yeah. like Chironi mm. and Earth, Wind and Fire, mm. I was I was sampling stuff from the vinyl and uh, using compositional techniques and, you know, uh, instead of just downloading it from iTunes, well, I, I'm, yeah. I went to, when I was in LA recently, I just bought the vinyl, you know. That's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, the li- my, li- let's say life and professional careers sort of shifted in its trajectory a little bit. Yep. Because now, um, yeah, I'm sort of the custodian musically of this show. Mm. Uh, but it's exciting because it's going on uh, It's going on a couple of cruise lines, Norwegian cruise lines, and mm. I get to replicate my version of myself on those shows as oh, well. Right. So, so you got to go and train Sam Booker's? i got to go and find Sam Booker's all Sam over Booker's, the world. you got to go and find Sam Booker's. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think... Uh, the next one's in Miami and I think I found a, a Mexican Sam Booker. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it's that. Oh. <laughs> What's that? Oh, just got tequila on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, it's um, yeah, DJ Anejo, uh, Patron, you know. <laughs> DJ, DJ Game of Patrons. 
<laughs> that's a sweet. That's a sweet as reference, though. Actually, those guys. Oh, was it? Oh, right. They used to have this uh, night called Game of Patrons. <laughs> Funny guys. Yeah. They love their tequila shots, but yeah, indeed. You, know, you don't have to publish this, but uh, yeah, I've got to find little sambukas. Mm. It's it's one of those things, Stevie, where you know I created something out of the from a creative uh, circle to go just do it. What would you do? You're the drummer, but you're the DJ. You've got a character. You're wearing these like weird clothes. Like you've got like, a visor on. You're quite anonymous. Mm. I said, well, you know, I'd love to. Yeah, you know, I, I want to play drums. Like I want to have percussion. And so that that's when I went to Simon at, at Roland and went, listen, I want to, I want to be able to play a hand sonic, but on my body, so I can go out into the audience and play it. In front of people, and have the audio triggered by me playing the, the hand sonic, but right, right. it's just it's, it's just like walking out with a guitar. It's just a it's a jack connection, wireless pack, and then he's like, okay, we need to find a battery that can power the hand sonic because it's like AC power. Like, mm. And he was like, dude, I've got you sorted. And so he made me a battery pack, a charging station, and I had this like weightlifting belt. That uh, a friend of mine, Bianca, who's a costume designer, was an Everlast weightlifting belt, and yep. she attached this. If we're at the studio, if we do part two, I'll show you some yep. of this stuff. Awesome. If you do the video version, okay. She built this like attachment. It looks like a little bit of a penis, but the hand sonic fits on the end of it, and it, it's got a drum key, and it tightens up, and the power and all the the uh, Let's say the wireless stuff yep. is built underneath, so you don't see it. You, don't see it, you just yeah. see me walk out with a hand sonic, but it's actually strapped to me. Uh, and again, it's like, uh, and even Roland Japan were going, "Oh, you cannot do this." Uh, you know, <laughs> what is what is he doing? It's like, well, hang still, on, what was that accent? I was trying to be a like bit Japanese. No, I yeah, think it was, was like French. Yeah, what is this? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make any accents anymore. How's that? <laughs> uh. They were going. They, I said, "Can you make a, a a battery pack for the hand sonic so I can walk around an audience and play it?" Yeah. And they're like, "No, no one's no. We don't do that." So, well, I'm gonna do it. Mm. You know, full tilt to the boys at Roland. They they mm. made me that. They made it work. Yep. You know, nothing's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. You know. If I want to walk out with a drum machine strapped to my body, then I want to do it. Mm. Yeah. So the problem was is I said that I could do it and then I had no idea how to do it. That's why <laughs> those guys came in handy. But, yeah, eventually we did. It's like the, the standing singing drummer percussionist. All right. Yeah. I can do that. That guy. Mm, yeah. That guy. Well, yeah. I mean, we can audition you for Velvet if you want, Stevie. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you want I'll do the Japanese one. <laughs> Japanese, Japanese Sambuka. Yeah. Mm. Hello, how are you? Arigato uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Thank you for listening, Roland Japan. That's where my endorsement just, just caved in. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow yeah. morning I get an email. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Sambuka. It's over. It's, uh, it's, it's a different path. And uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm sort of, as I said, a little bit of a, uh, a custodian of the show just to make sure it's still going. So, yep. Uh, there's possibilities all around the world for it, which is great. That and is cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And 
uh, yeah, we got nominated for an ARIA as well for Best Soundtrack Album. Great. Uh, and again, I said, you know, I just made an album of this great music that I'd lived and loved and grew up with for, you know, so many years. So it wasn't hard to make it, like, special. Yep. Try and, make, like, do the work to do it, you know. And again, you know, you can't nothing, – nothing ever equates to money. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll give you this money and then you're going to make this one. He's like, I'm going to make the best thing I can physically do. Yep. To make it sound the best it can sound. Because I know what it should sound like at the front, you know. When you're in the show, sometimes you don't know what it sounds like, you know. Mm-hmm. Ask any musicians, well, you're playing, you know, you're playing drums and you're playing in front of all these people. How do you know what it sounds like? Do you know? Don't really. Friends will come and say, oh, I sounded great. You don't really know. Mm. How do you simulate that? With mm. this show, I can. I can just run stuff, press a few triggers on the roll and stuff and then I'll go out the front and listen to it. Yeah. While Marsha and people are, you know, singing the songs to me. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, important to me that it does sound good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of work, Stevie. Yeah, yeah. You know. And so, is that taking up all your time now, or have you got are you have you got other shows you're working on, mm. or, or or Velvet's kind of still still taking up all your time? Velvet's uh, well, it took up the last ten days, but no, the we're doing another uh, a version of it for um, the Norwegian Breakaway, which is in Miami in April, and that's where I have to get another Sam Booker. Hmm. Uh, so I'm scoring the show as well so that all the vocalists can learn the show before I get there to rehearse. Okay, good. So we get there and rehearse, build the show, put it on the ship and then we get off. That's, uh, awesome. That's so cool. So it's just a – yeah, it's a, it's a process. It's time more than anything. But, yeah, along the way I can do sessions like I did the last couple yeah. of days with David yep. Campbell at yep. 301. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a couple of musicals as well. Uh, I did Dream Lover with David Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, MD'd a musical called Gypsy mm-hmm. for the Hayes Theatre. Gypsy. Last I, year. I was watching, yeah. I was looking at your Instagram today mm-hmm. and I was in absolute fucking hysterics watching the little Gypsy reenactments. Yes. I was in absolute tears. I tell you what, I haven't laughed that much in a long time. So thank you for that. It was so good. And, well, and I'm going to watch it again and again and if I can link that in the show notes so other people can get a laugh. Yeah. At your Joe Acaria Instagram, yeah, yeah. You can if it's you just very, go. To, it's very funny. If you just go to my profile, I've yeah. I've highlighted stories. Yep. You know you can highlight. Yeah. Story. Mm. Uh, me and my great great bass player Marty Hollebeck, who's now in Japan. Uh, we started doing it with Dream Lover as well because you know you're in it when you're doing musicals. There's a lot of time. A lot of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you're on I've if you're that. on stage as well and. I prefer to do the ones that are on stage. I'm not really a, a fan of the pit musical, but uh, that means I'll never get one ever again, which is great. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. The But, yeah, you get to listen. But you get to watch and listen to these great actors enacting these scenes. So you start, like, you know, duplicating and mimicking their – it's so funny. Mm. Uh, and we're not very good. Oh, but it's, it's great. At the same time, it's uh, it's a little bit of respite from, you know, from eight shows a week again, mm. you know. And it's like, it's like you're very, very serious <laughs> and your mate Marty's like he's doing his bit but he's got this little smirk. Yeah. Like he, he wants to 
what's the crack up laughing? Yeah. It's, we cracked it, up a lot. Oh, man. Yeah. They, really they weren't the first takes, the ones that you see on Instagram. Oh, right. Actually. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're like six, seven, eight takes. And it was like, yeah. guys, uh, interval's over. We're still oh, recording. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the show got in the way of our Instagram stories. Like okay, bloody shows. Fuck. I know. <laughs> bloody shows. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I look, I, I like to have a look at things in a, in a different light as well, especially. But uh, there's, no, there's no way that we don't take what we do seriously. Mm. And yeah, it's course. important that we do the right thing. Of course. Uh, but, you know, on those moments where, with, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm a... I like to flick the switch and go, okay, we're not working. Let's have some fun. If it's for 10 minutes. That's it. Let's talk about something else. Let's go out on the balcony or let's go for a walk or, you know what I mean, like, let's go and get a coffee, right? really switch off because that world is intense and, and I've, now that I've experienced it a lot more, it's, uh, I've got to concentrate a lot but at times where I need to concentrate. There are other times where I, I just need to relax myself a little bit, you know. Because I think that contributes to a lot of stress with not only musicians but actors and, and performers in general that you're always so, you know, focused and you've got the blinkers on and sometimes you've got to just switch it off and yep. make fun of yourself a little bit, mm. you know. Have, a bit, have some jokes at your own expense. Uh, make up some names about your own character. Call yourself Sam Booker, <laughs> whatever. You know, like yeah. it's, yeah, I think that's also important but not, it's not the reason why we do it. It's mm-hmm. just a it's a a very enjoyable fringe benefit of, yep. of doing what I do. And I'm very privileged and uh, uh, I respect every moment that I'm doing now. Maybe maybe before I didn't, you know. Mm. I think uh, a lot more now that I realise that I'm here I'm doing what I'm doing for a reason, not uh, not to do with anything about fame or money or or uh, notoriety, you know, it's, it's you know, it really. If it makes you feel good, then you're doing something good. Mm-hmm. Now, if it makes, if you're feeling good at the expense of someone else, then that's wrong. But uh, in the circles that that I'm dealing with, it's all a shared experience. So we're all sharing in something. It's not. If one of us isn't doing our job, then the whole thing's going to suffer. Mm-hmm. If uh, if one of us is doing too much of a good job, then everyone needs to pick up. You know, it's it's that sort of balance that uh, I've been really interested in uh, exploring of late. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure where it's going to lead, to be honest. Again, it's like when I was in my 20s, I'm not sure where, where the next gig's going to be. I'm, I'm, I, I know what the next six to 12 months is going to hold, but yeah. I, I, um, I'm excited by it. That's cool. Man. More than anything, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excited to to do more, and also to, uh, as I said, you know, I I don't play or gig as much as I did, but when I do, it's really fun, mm. and it's it's not it's, it's a choice. I choose to do it. Mm. I don't. I could not do it. I didn't have. I don't have to do it. Uh, but part of me has to do it. You know, I'm still that guy. I'm still that drummer from Punchbowl, no doubt. There's no doubt about that. It's just that I'm, uh, I'm, f- I'm feeling my way through some new things. You know, and even at my age, uh, it's there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. 
it's great to be back on the drums though. You know, yesterday playing like it's it's a fascinating uh, feeling, cathartic feeling doing it. But uh, you realise that if you don't do it often enough, like yeah, your chops. I was on the ship last week, you know, with Velvet. I was on there for ten days, and they've got like a you know a house band and something. I was like. It's going up to the house drum and go, dude, can I just borrow some sticks? I just need to, I just need to <laughs> see if I can still shed do for it. a bit in my room, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to keep that stuff up, yep. you know. Yep. It just doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you know. There's a certain, you know, base standard where you know you can play. You can, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like, that's good, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, in between, you know, takes the other day, I was just like frantically doing some warm-ups and stuff, you know. You've still yeah. got to do that stuff. Yeah. yeah, We're not, yeah, none of it, it just comes to you. Yeah. You know, you've mm. got to, uh, you've always got to work at, at yeah. your your art and your passion. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And your instrument. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I, I guess with you still being actively in music every single day, I guess time wouldn't, your, your timing wouldn't suffer so much because you're always... You've always got something going on. Yeah, that's right. With your body. So I think yeah. that. <clears throat> I think that when, when I started being more involved as a, as an MD, I think my drumming got better. Mm-hmm. Now it got less. Let's say, uh, choppy and yep. less impressive. Less like, look what he can do. It became more about the music. About the song. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's you know I. Even last year I was in Christchurch with Rob, Rob Hurst. I went to see Midnight Oil in Christchurch. We were doing Velvet. We had a night off on there. Like Rob Hurst is one of my all-time favourite musicians, not just drummers, mm-hmm. right? And he said, I said to him, mate, you're still powering. You're like, there's nothing, you haven't lost anything. So, well, it's the songs. The songs carry me in a way. And maybe if we go back to the start of this this recording, you might hear me say it was all about me learning songs as a kid. That's all I did is I learned songs. I loved the drumming. Of course I did. But the important factor was the song, serving the song. Now I'm serving uh, my own songs or my own versions or arrangements of songs mm-hmm. and that's something not to be you know, dismissive about. Mm-hmm. I've got I to make sure this shit sounds good. For me and for the people that – all these people that are relying on the sound of something, you know. Uh, not to say I'm more important than anybody else. I'm just part of a, uh, an important machine, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But never – I think I'll never lose sight of the fact that the song comes first or the piece or the music or the 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 aria or the concerto. You know, whatever you're doing musically, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's – you're, if you're doing something that is musical, you're doing it to serve that bit of music. You're not doing it for yourself. And I think that's, uh, it's important to uh, realise that without being too cosmic about the whole thing, so we're, we're, yeah, we're sort of here because we love music. But music is not just one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here because... We love to play live, we love to write music, we love to practice, we love to listen to other people. We love to talk about ourselves, like today, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's um, – we're always learning. 
Mm. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever get there. I don't. It's like you know, I, I like to do yoga, so I'm never gonna, never gonna master it. I'm never gonna get to a point where you know what? I've got it. See you later. See you guys. Mm. Music's same. You're never gonna, you're never gonna go. Okay, guys, uh, I'm I ready got, to check yeah, out. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Uh, I'll call my friends. I'm gonna go. If someone calls me. I'm gonna go. Hey, mate, listen, I've got it. I found the, uh, you know, the chalice. I find, you know, the the. Uh, <laughs> The uh, the fountain of musical youth. It's like it's never going to happen. Yeah. Always striving and learning, but yeah, I don't want this to sound like advice, but never discount anything. Yeah. If something comes across, you go, like, oh, "Oh, just go." No, I'm never going to do that. Mm. I did that for a couple of things, and um, ended up doing them anyway. So. Oh, right. Job done. Right. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. I think we've still got plenty more to talk about. Okay. But that'll be part two, I think. All right. Um, it was an absolute pleasure, <laughs> pleasure sitting with you today, Joe, and hearing you talk about your career and and your life and stuff. And um, thanks for being on the podcast. And um, yeah, I definitely wish you all the best for the for the next twelve months and beyond. And um, look forward to talking to you. Thanks, again. Stevie. Mm. Thanks for coming over. Too easy, man. And thanks for doing this. I think it's great that you're you're talking to uh, people of uh, of our ilk and like that have been in the business for a while. I know? think it's important that you know. You, I've said this before that that you guys get get your stories out there. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep doing it. Good on you. I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone's unique. It's, I totally will. No, and like I said, we've all got a story. So. That's right. There's no mm. blueprint to what we do. Yeah. If if I can, um, if I can help people as well, I think it's important. Mm. And I think it's um, it's a different business, you know. Without going into it too much, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why it's it's. You know, I've sort of almost without unconsciously knowing that I've expanded my horizons without knowing it because I've, I have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's the, the sort of, you know, the inner, you've got to, the breadwinner, you've got to keep doing what you're doing. But, yeah, I don't think that way. I just think that I'm very fortunate to be around some really interesting people as well. But to be able to talk to you about it is great and thanks for coming, man. Sweet as. Thank you, Joe. All right, man. Cheers, bro. Cheers. Later, man. All right.